0: Hello and welcome to Tales from the Campanile, a production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. In our inaugural season, From the Outside End, Women in Politics, we explore the long and embattled history of women who left their mark on the nation's political arena. Please join our host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Elva Davis, for Episode 5, Claiming Space in the Party Structure.
1: Behind every politician stands an army of power brokers. They are advisors who craft strategy, fundraise, direct campaigns, draft policy, and if successful, earn a seat within the party's state and national organization. Women had long worked within the party ranks, aiding in such behind-the-scenes activities. However, their vital role often went overlooked and unrewarded like other facets of America's political system, this too began to change.
2: It's very difficult to find a woman who is free to move to Sacramento or to Washington for Mm full-time political offices. It means that they have to be either single or married to somebody who's a writer or a musician or something that gives a portable skill, mm-hmm. or have no just no family responsibilities at all. Mm-hmm. But to to criticize the men for keeping mm-hmm. out the women from elective office is to me a lot of bunk, mm-hmm. and it is still. If you look over the rosters of legislatures in some parts of the South and uh, some parts of New England when they meet for six weeks every two years or something like that mm-hmm. a very brief period. Even Texas only meets for six months every two years. Mm-hmm. This is a manageable mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, women in, in civil service were really not given uh, much consideration. I think they were kept in the low-pay, low-grade mm-hmm. jobs to a great extent. Mm-hmm. There were a few exceptions. Mm-hmm. They could be used for their availability of time and energy, which is probably the most common. And they would often be made co-chairmen of something, and it was definitely understood that the their half was the inferior half, and that their job was to, for instance, if if a comment had to be made by the campaign, the chairman, the male, would issue the press release, which the woman had probably drawn up mm-hmm. and typed, and take it over to him to okay it, and then she took it to the paper. And I think this is why we're seeing so few volunteers among young women today, Mm -hmm. that they are darned if they're going to be exploited as they feel my generation was exploited.
1: That was Elizabeth Getoff, one of the pioneering operatives in California politics and the Democratic Party. Born in Montreal, Canada, Getoff moved to California in 1944 and quickly immersed herself in party politics. Throughout the 1950s, she would co-chair a Bay Area congressional district, the Marin County Democratic Committee, and three state campaigns. To get off chagrin, few women on the national level joined her in developing a new path within party politics. One of the key obstacles in opening the party's structure to women was the existence of the Women's Division, separate organizations, that significantly isolated female participation from the central male-dominated activities of the party. Getoff believed that separate was not equal. To her, such divisions relegated women to secondary status and obscured their political contributions. Getoff wanted to do the work and get the credit, so she refused to work exclusively with the women's division and instead continued advancing her place within the party's mainstream. Her work paid off. In 1956, she was elected by party leaders to serve on the Democratic National Committee, becoming one of the first women to take a seat in the national organization. Her skills caught the attention of even more party members. In 1960, California Governor Edmund Pat Brown appointed Getoff as Deputy Labor Commissioner. One year later, she was President John F. Kennedy's choice for United States Treasurer.
2: What I was aware of was that it was viewed at that time as being the top woman's mm-hmm, appointment. Mm-hmm. So I was highly flattered about that. Right. The job was something else in me. And uh, I did try while I was there to Get it upgraded or abolished. In conversations that I had with Secretary Dillon, mm-hmm. because I pointed out to him several times that he seemed to agree that for a woman to get the appointment, mm-hmm. she had to be a relatively high-powered individual mm-hmm. with some competence in something, or she wouldn't have been offered it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And to then expect it to be a ceremonial job, I thought was was rather Mm -hmm.
1: Her perceived secondary status as a woman greeted Getoff almost immediately upon her arrival in Washington, D.C. In her confirmation hearing, senators bantered about how she had a very fine signature, one they hoped to see many times, while others joked about how good her face would look on the dollar bill. This was only a prelude to the sexism she would endure in the nation's capital. All, All of that, this really mm-hmm. sexist yeah, type of stuff. That's, that's right.
2: Was to me rather shocking. It I was. Wasn't, uh-huh. I wasn't you used weren't used to it. Yeah, I
1: see. Mm-hmm.
2: But uh, if this was the way it was, this was the way it was. He really didn't think mm-hmm. women had much place, and there were many men that I encountered who didn't. Mm-hmm. But naturally, when you find somebody like that, you uh, you get around, you ignore them. And then there are a lot of men who assume that women are only in politics for sexual purposes. and I only there because you're somebody's mistress? Well, this, this comes from people who regard it as a dirty, filthy business. Mm-hmm. And what sort of, what's a nice girl like you doing, mm-hmm. playing a mm-hmm. piano in a house like mm-hmm. this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> I've encountered a lot of that, that attitude. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't understand why a nice person like you was involved in politics. Mm-hmm. So it, was, and it always infuriated my mother. She didn't like politics herself, uh-huh. but she didn't like anybody saying uh-huh. but that what I did was not right. right.
1: <laughs> After a year, Getoff resigned from her appointment. Governor Pat Brown called her back home to California to assist in his reelection bid against Richard Nixon. Over the next decade, she would go on to direct and co-chair nine campaigns, both state and national. In 1974, she managed her last campaign for the first woman elected to the office of Secretary of State. That candidate was none other than March Fong Yu. Of course, not all women had the same vision for their role in the political system.
3: Interestingly enough, I uh, have never uh, participated as anything less than a total equal in the campaign I've ever worked in. and. Um, uh, though I, uh, I said, uh, as is usually yeah. the case, yeah. I ended up doing the nitty gritty and the work, but I also had an equal voice mm-hmm. in any decisions or any conferences, any de- anything. Can I know that there's much been said about and much feeling um, that women got the uh, the hard work but never got the voice. Mm-hmm. But in my own particular experience, this was never true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had mm-hmm. just as much voice as uh, any man on a corresponding uh, level. Now, I didn't have as much influence or voice in that campaign as the state chairman of the campaign Mm -hmm. had, but I had as much as anybody else on that same Mm -hmm. level, and that was always true in every campaign.
1: That was Patricia Hitt, another pioneering operative in California politics and the Republican Party. Although she worked across the aisle from Elizabeth Getoff Their careers ran parallel. Hitt entered state politics in 1946, serving on a host of local and state Republican committees. She emerged as one of the leading females in the party. She chaired the Women's Fundraising and Strategy Committees in California for a number of gubernatorial, Senate, and presidential campaigns. For Hitt, politics was a full-time job that required a level of support at home not typical for 1950s America.
3: Well, perhaps that's one of the reasons I had an equal, I don't know, because I, I could be there. No matter what kind of held the meetings, I could be there and I was.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Because I had, um, uh, first and foremost, a very supportive husband.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, if it hadn't been for Bob's hits attitude, I could never have done any of these things. Mm-hmm. And a very supportive family. Nobody ever squawked if they got a TV dinner.
1: Like Getoff, Hitt's skills soon caught the eye of party leaders. In 1960, she became one of the first women elected to the Republican National Committee.
3: When I became National Committee woman, if I was going to do the job, I was going to do it mm-hmm. right, and I was going to do it the way I thought it would be, and the best. And there was no, no means of, there was no financial support from the state committee or anybody else but the national committee members and my mm-hmm. father picked up the tab and it, mm-hmm. in those days it, it ran in the neighborhood of ten thousand dollars a year and that was a lot of money in those days. Yeah. For my travel, for a full time secretary that uh, mm-hmm. I needed, for the bulletins I got, or all the things that I did that had never been done before oh from goodness. a national committee level. By
1: 1968 Hit found herself at the top of the list for Richard Nixon's presidential campaign. However. Instead of working within the main operational framework, Hitt boldly decided to lead an independent committee called Women for Nixon, a venture that gave her full control over the group's strategy and fundraising.
3: Yeah, I had a totally separate budget uh, for that and um, a completely free hand, Mm -hmm. completely free hand. Not, Not Ellsworth, not Mitchell, not Nixon, not anybody ever told me what to do or what I could do or couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just kind of an incredible, a uh, beautiful situation, mm-hmm. ideal, because mm-hmm. I participated in all policy decisions and um, it really wasn't accountable to anyone, didn't have to clear anything.
1: Not all men in the Nixon camp willingly accepted hits hand, especially campaign director and future Attorney General John Mitchell. In one instance, Mitchell attempted to use the funds raised by Hits organization, an act she forcefully challenged.
3: It was his concept that everything should go out Nixon, 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 nothing. I said, not on your life, John. We've raised this money for this. I said, if you want to know the truth, those spots are going to have a whole lot more impact if they carry the designation, political advertisement paid for by women for Nixon, Agnew than just paid for by the Nixon campaign mm-hmm. committee. I said, you're missing a bet. For one thing, we've told the women this is what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. When they watch it, I want them to know. When they yes. these go on, yes. I want these women to know that this is what they're, to see yes. what their dollars paid for. But I said, as far as the listening audience is concerned, uh, the people, the other people, it's going to have much more impact mm-hmm. to see that there is a bunch of women that they care that much if they're raising that money and paying for it. Uh, and it, we had several discussions on it, and finally. Um, the candidate himself overruled. Oh, the himself himself made that decision. Mm. He said she's right and that's the way it's going to go.
1: The battle with John Mitchell exemplified the equal footing that hit commanded in both the male-dominated GOP and the high-stakes arena of presidential politics.
3: We had a marvelous, marvelous rapport. Mm-hmm. There was a great mutual respect and, and trust mm-hmm. and, and uh, it was a situation where if I hadn't been there, they'd have all been asking why, mm-hmm. where did she get her here? But it was not a, it was not a male-female kind of a thing. Uh, I was there from a standpoint of what I had to offer
2: mm-hmm. in
3: thinking or experience or being able to read campaign strategy, whatever it was. Not, a, mm-hmm. but not. but I, I never in my life have been treated as a token woman
2: mm-hmm. in
3: politics, I've never been included just because I had to have a woman,
2: mm-hmm.
3: or as a token woman. Uh, it's always been on an equal basis, on whatever level, or in whatever way. And I had just as much voice, and I was listened to as much as John Mitchell or anybody else. And I didn't always agree with me. But I, there was never a time that I couldn't express my opinion, and never, ever was there a time when I felt that I was being humored. No, I was one of the boys.
1: Hit's effectiveness was not lost on the newly elected president. In 1969, she was appointed Assistant Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, becoming the highest-ranking woman in the Nixon administration. Her position signaled how things had begun to change in Washington and party politics. In this role, Hitt was responsible for hiring new staff, forcing male applicants to confront their readiness to work for a female.
3: One of the major points that I made and the major discussions that I had with everybody I ever interviewed for a job that was going to be working under me or close to me was, how do you feel about it? Can you? There were two, three very, very bright young men uh, that I interviewed uh, when I was trying to fill positions uh, and and I said, would say to the secretary, say, that won't work mm-hmm. because I knew that they, they not only would have extreme difficulty working for a woman, but it would be almost impossible for to work for a middle-aged woman. So that uh, I was conscious that that could be a problem. You can sense those things. If, If I sensed it in an interview, that was the end of it because let's face it, I was the boss. We did have to work together.
1: Both Elizabeth Getoff and Patricia Hitt successfully claimed their space within the structure of party politics and did so at the highest levels. Although they faced their share of struggles, they earned an equal and respected seat at a table traditionally dominated by men.
2: No, I, d- I never felt uh, ignored or uh, put down or tolerated or mm-hmm. whatever word you would use. Mm-hmm.
3: It was not a male female kind of a thing, there was a great mutual respect and and trust. Uh, I was there from a the standpoint of what I had to offer mm-hmm. in thinking or experience or being able to read, campaign strategy, whatever it was. Not, mm-hmm. But not. I was not, a, I never in my life have been treated as a token woman.
1: As off and Hit observed, an equal seat did not negate the unique and important contribution they brought to the political table as women.
2: Women are accustomed to listening and to studying and to paying attention to an individual. I really think women have a better capacity for that than the male ge- generally does with sort of blinders. I think mean, women are more sensitive by training, perhaps, if nothing else. They're used to considering something besides the uh, perhaps the economic ramifications of something,
3: And I think that women do bring a special quality, a special, a different kind of attitude. Now I'll say one thing. I think, generally speaking, women are less apt to fall into dishonest traps Hmm. or immoral. I think women are better with people, usually, and and more keenly aware of people problems.
1: Throughout their long career, Elizabeth Gethoff and Patricia Hitt helped open a new door for women in politics, one that would lead to female advisors sitting at the center of political campaigns, policy discussions, and elected administrations. As we will see in our final episode, this would play a key role in ushering in a new era of American politics and the next generation of women politicians also there's a whole different attitude
3: toward women and women have improved their attitude toward women. They didn't have any confidence in women. Well that's all changed. Established women are, and, or women
0: who've got it are having a chance they can run for any, any spot they want. This has been a production of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Narrated by Belva Davis. Researched and written by Todd Holmes. Produced and edited by Shanna Farrell and Christina Kim. Production assistance was provided by Julie Allen, Paul Burnett, David Dunham, Martin Meeker, and Linda Norton. And a special thank you to Project Advisor David Boyer. All interview clips were drawn from the Oral History Center collections. I'm Martin Meeker, Director of the Oral History Center. Thank you for listening.